were so conditioned to fall. I was playing with this uh, earlier this evening. Um, just walked. I did a walk up and down the driveway a couple times, and um, and I remember Ajahn Sumedho talking about this too. Just the uh, that restless quality there, sitting on the tightrope in the present moment. You know, just hanging out in the great space of now. Thoughts coming, sensations coming and going. Sounds coming and going. And it's really hard, given the conditioning of the mind, it's really hard to leave it alone. To leave that, you know, the mind that's like this wish-fulfilling tree. You know, it's, it's truly amazing that uh, with this mind, we can imagine anything. At any moment... I can imagine having a billion dollars. And it's like this playground, right? Just like, what would I do with a billion dollars? Or I can imagine like the next board meeting going really badly, you know, and all the drama, you know, they don't like me or whatever, you know, whatever your fear, fearful places. So it's a little bit like that where uh, we have this imagination, we have this conceptual universe, it's very fluid. How many conceptual universes have we inhabited just today? Expansive ones, contracted ones, ones that are somewhat related to the sort of what we call together the uh, consensual reality and some that are have nothing to do with the consensual reality you know so many different bubbles we've inhabited and like a dream you know when we're in it we really feel it it feels as real as anything feels real and the amazing thing is that although it changes you know the inconsistency doesn't kind of shock us or wake us up like, well, that's, that's different than it was, you know? Happy, sad, ecstatic, depressed, bored. It's like, well, who am I? Which one of them am I? One thing we can count on is that it's um, it's always okay to start over. That's why I like this image of the tightrope. It's always okay to start over. And uh, no matter how far off into some drama we seem to be, like let's say we've been proliferating for a while, you know, where we've, with our billion dollars, we've, first we saved the world so we wouldn't feel guilty. You know, and then we've, you know, done this and that, delighted ourselves in all the ways that would be delightful for ourselves. And there, you know, 45 minutes into it, we realize what we're doing. And it may feel like the present moment is miles away, you know, because we've been so bad, having such a superficial fantasy. It may feel like we've really blown it. And of course, if we believe that thought, 
then for a while it will it will seem like that's actually the reality that we are far 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 away because we have this very strong belief that the mind's identified with so the mind literally constructs the imagined reality that we're really far away from the present moment and so like a dream it's real we're far away from the present moment but as soon as we're willing to let these constructions these dreams die then there we are on the present uh, on the present moment tightrope you know <laughs> there again in that amazing place different people in the small groups have mentioned and you know not just this retreat and this is familiar to me as i was mentioning you know just this poignant somewhat restless somewhat um awkward place of being there on the tightrope knowing knowing that this is how it is knowing that the moment is like this or things are like this they're being known and we have this great edifice this huge huge edifice of habit energy you know which basically is about messing around in that space of the present moment you know acting out with greed anger or delusion you know there's so it's like it'd be there's nothing easier than to play the greed card or the aversion card or the delusion card so that's that restless place as a practitioner there in the poignant present moment teetering on the tightrope with all this this great force of habit energy to be greedy to be aversive fearful to be distracted or deluded and so we have you know like one way one impulse after another to do to do to do to do and we kind of know there's nothing to do but it's it's like it'd be so easy just to do so it's it's an un uh easy place for us initially to trust just to leave things alone that this is enough it's just enough to be in the present moment we don't have to do anything you know it's the, it's so it's it's the height of irony that what's in the way of release is all of our neurotic attempts to realize release you know the release is when we the mind finally in a moment ceases to try to attain release you know it's like putting down that self-centered activity to personally get release i will personally get it in that article i mentioned yesterday um christina feldman's article the senior teacher in the um insight meditation vipassana scene here in the west it's called making a joyful effort she talks about these identities that we pick up you know there on the tightrope we pick up some of these identities and almost always the identity the sort of practice identity has to do with the kind of effort we're going to make 
And like that little boy said to his mother yesterday when I was reading that story about, you know, hey mom, imagine that you're being surrounded by hungry tigers, you know, and they're all surrounding you and they're going to eat you up and tear you apart. Well, you know, what would you do? I don't know what I'd do. What would you do? And the little boy says, I'd stop pretending. And so it's like these kind of um, ways of efforting, you know, that we think this is how I have to practice. It's a, like pretending to be the practitioner, acting out the practitioner role in the way we think that the practitioner has to practice. It's like the different traps that limit our mind, the practice traps that limit our mind. She talks about um, the striver, right? So somebody with maybe overinflated expectations, imagining the gold, you know, the spiritual gold, and uh, generally the greedy type. We almost like have the taste. Of course, it's just a dream. They are on the tightrope. The taste of what it would be like, like how cool it would be to be fully enlightened. You know, we have pictures. Our imagination creates pictures of how we'd be, how we'd handle certain situations, how lovely we would be, skillful we would be. And, we're, you know, we really like it. And, uh, you know, as a striver, it has a lot to do with a sense of worthiness, like I'll be, I'll be finally worth something when I get there. And right now I'm not there. So it, it really creates this sense of unworthiness because we're not there yet. Or this is just the general dualistic good and bad. This is bad, I'm still bad but I'm going to be good. I'm going to become good. And we get interested in the parts of the path that uh, are somewhat linear where we can like see where we are. Even something silly like how many breaths can I be aware of before I space out? I did three, you know, I counted my breath three groups of ten today or ten groups of ten. I couldn't get to four before I lost count. You know, I mean, a complete failure. Or there's, you know, others, there's in uh, Theravada tradition, there's something called the progress of insight, which is a, you know, a pretty elaborate map of how insight unfolds. And in some traditions, and uh, mostly coming out of the Mahasi Saida tradition, which is a, very influential style of practice coming out of Burma. Mahasi Sada was a well-known Burmese monk. Um, was very famous in the late 20s and all the way till he died, I think in the late 80s. Um, and part of what he used, I mean, it was just the practice was basic satipatthana, just mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of the dhammas. But he really used this progress of insight map. And uh, at least in the past, 
you know, they would tell you exactly where you are, you know, on this map, like how many insights you've had, what the next insight will be, because they believe it just unfolds in this very systematic way. Like if you've had this insight, then you, nothing will happen until you have this next insight. And then after that, there's always this insight, and then this insight, and then, you know, first stage of awakening and on from there. And so people who are strivers tend to like these kind of maps. I'm here. And you're only there. Because we, we like to not only figure out where we are, but, oh yeah, you're probably just here. I remember when I was there, how it was. Yeah. How long we sit is like that too. I remember this, you know, it's like, you know, I'm going to be the last one in the room. I don't care. Because <laughs> I'm experienced. <laughs> so, you know, no one should sit longer than me. How many retreats? I mean, we definitely have this sort of cult of retreat practice where, you know, it's like, uh, you know, in the military and they got these things on their chest, you know, it's like we can't wear it. It's like we're too cool to wear it on our chest, but it's like we can, if we play our cards right, we can get people to ask us how many retreats we've done. <laughs> So we get a chance to tell you know, so many feeds. <laughs> Just so many. <laughs> or how long we've been practicing, that's another one. I mean, I, I know these, it's like, and, and, you know, and it's it can be useful information and it's sort of, oh yeah, I guess, you know, you know, if you're a teacher, you need to have a bio and you should say these things. But it's just interesting to notice how the mind likes these things or is embarrassed when it's, you know, we don't stack up compared to somebody else. So all these, that would just be just something to notice. Like there on the tightrope, do we have striving energy? And just to see that as a coherent identity. You know, these identities, they have a coherence, meaning they're very much like what we call a living being. There's a coherence to them, a, an integrity to them, these psychological patterns or these coherent psychological patterns. So when we fall into them, they, it fits very well with me. You know, it's like, that's who I am, this one who's striving to be enlightened. And in that world, in that, coherent pattern, that kind of wrong effort makes sense. It just feels right. And the whole, my whole way of organizing reality confirms the kind of effort I'm making, the striving I'm doing. So we just, we want to see how that, you know, these identities, whatever they are, I'm just mentioning a few of the ones that Christina brings up in her article, you know, we just see how they are ways of forgetting the most important thing. Because we feel safe having an identity, being the striver. It gives our life some coherence. Because as I mentioned last night, the real entry point to release isn't some coherent pattern. It's a sense of vulnerability and nakedness. I, I don't know if I, t no, I don't think I told this group I was giving a retreat 
last weekend up at uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota. And for most of the weekend, we, we worked on this uh, this teaching. Um, came from a story, uh, evidently Rev Anderson, or a, an interaction Rev Anderson, this well-known Zen teacher, had with a student where uh, Reb in one of the Dokusans, these one-to-one interviews with a teacher, a Zen teacher, they called Dokusan, and uh, he asked his student, what's the difference between you and a Buddha? And the student didn't immediately have an answer, so Reb said, the difference is a Buddha never forgets that she is vulnerable, and an ordinary person only remembers that some of the time. And so this entry to release is the not forgetting vulnerability. You know, it's like it's being naked, it's not having a stance. So it's like when we're on the tightrope, we know we're on a tightrope. We know that it's a balancing act. And uh, it's a very dynamic, uncertain place. And of course, then the practice, remember it was a, moment, a while back I was saying, it's sort of, we want the habit energy of the mind is to want to do something about that tenuous, insecure, vulnerable place, to construct something. But we always, every time we do that, we fall off. So instead, maybe we practice not forgetting we're vulnerable not imagining that that's a problem, being vulnerable, being exposed, naked there on the tightrope. Maybe that's okay. Another identity, you know, that we can create there on the tightrope is the ambivalent or half-hearted, doubtful identity. You know, we all, this is probably familiar to our, all of us. All of these will be familiar, you know. We use all of these different identities, some more than others probably, but it's not like, you know, we only use one of them. You know, when we're half-hearted or doubtful, we... Uh, we're always second-guessing ourselves. You can imagine how quickly we'd fall off the tightrope being half-hearted. Always doubting ourselves, always wondering if we know what we're doing. Here's what Christina says about that. We can be quite conscientious about showing up, but everything else looks like a lucky accident if we run into the occasional breath. In this kind of effort, it's just bad luck if we spaced out completely in the whole sitting. It's almost like waiting for meditation to deliver a glimpse of something, as if you're waiting for a delivery to arrive. This is a disengaged, disengaged type of effort, right? Because we doubt the efficacy of effort, of effort. because we we feel burnt. That's why we're half-hearted. Like, I've tried, and it always slaps me in the face. So I'm kind of tired of trying. I don't even know, probably I don't know what I'm doing, so why bother trying? This dis- She says, this disengaged type of effort 
this is a disengaged type of effort, and it reflects the inner belief that life is something that just happens to us. We are not a conscious participant in the kind of world we live in. Sometimes that ambivalent effort manifests as low expectations or a reduced sense of inner possibility. We just want to make it to the end of the retreat. We've totally given up any sort of idealistic notion that this is a great thing or great things could happen, right? Now, how many times did that happen today? Where we're just like, I just don't want to embarrass myself. (laughs) You know, it's not a very effective way to live like to give a Dharma talk with the only motivation, I just don't want to embarrass myself. (laughs) Or to go on a date, I just don't want to embarrass myself. Or, you know, whatever. Write a paper, do a report at work. All I I care about is not embarrassing myself. (laughs) So we can just be aware of that kind of efforting, or that identity, rather, and just the rigidity, you know, the stickiness of that kind of identity. The next one she mentions is um, just an aversive identity. So this is another very common personality type. Impatient, aversive, always being critical, always seeing what's wrong. You know, they're on the tightrope. And kind of you know, we can have a generalized aversion to life. Like, it's not fair that I'm on the tightrope. It's not fair that my mind wanders. It's not fair that my body hurts. It's not fair that somebody's sniffling. It's not fair that, you know, we can go on and on, like all the things that are wrong. And it makes the whole thing this big, like, oh, i got to do it, you know, an onerous task. I just have to, it's my duty, my responsibility, I, the big should. And in a way, in this, with this aversive mind, like really funny things happen. It's almost like you can be sitting, you know, averse. And it's almost like, I would love for the building to start burning down. Because then the retreat would end. You know, we go home. I've seen this in my... I'm not kidding. I just a little confession here. But even even like these apocalyptic things, you know, it's like... Uh, like when, when life is just feeling burdensome, you know, just the grind of always having to do the next thing, the to-do list. It's like, you know, if the earth was hit, hit by an asteroid... It would change everything. <laughs> what did you say? Then I could go home. <laughs> yeah. Or I wouldn't, no one would, it wouldn't matter if I didn't do my to do list. <laughs> I mean, that's the relief. It's like it sets us free. So we, when you notice that, it's probably because you're stuck in an aversive uh, identity. You know, even your own, like, uh, <laughs> This is, again, just these silly fantasies like getting really sick, like cancer. Or <laughs> I, once, I once saw a psychic, this is a long time ago in the early 80s. Or I'm not, no, actually, it was here in this, when we moved to Minneapolis, so maybe the early 90s. And uh, he said to me something like, 
do you ski? I said, well, sometimes. He says, don't ski. <laughs> <laughs> you could, I don't know if he said you could, be a, you could become a paraplegic or quadriplegic or something like that. And so sometimes it pops up in my mind. It's like, and then, and then, it, then my, my mind would go, well, maybe I'd still have to do all my work. <laughs> you know, after I recovered and got sort of skilled with the wheelchair, I probably still have a lot of work to do. <laughs> you know, still have duties and responsibilities, still have to practice. So clearly, this is not going to lead to release, or any authentic experience of release. Aversion perpetuates aversion in the same way half-heartedness perpetuates half-heartedness. Any kind of striving perpetuates striving. That's what these identities perpetuate. The next one is the, uh, the warrior effort. And this is a little different than striving. Uh, the image that comes to my mind is like some of you have seen, and some of us were, these you know, four or five-year-old boys <laughs> with our G.I. Joes or our Tommy guns. And it's like uh, just uh, in, the, in the Buddhist cosmology, there's a whole realm of warring gods, it's called. People or beings, I should say, that are tripping over power, just like big noises. You know, like we, you know, throw the hanger, just that sound, just the sort of, and stomping, you know, and just like throwing weight around, throwing power around. And this is how this is our this is our stance or our identity there on the tightrope. It's like as if uh, this is a place to throw weight around, just to push and to yell and to pound and to beat. And we <clears throat> we kind of lose sight with this sort of identity. It's less important like where we're going or what we're setting in motion, and we just kind of like the commotion the drama, the noise. We get really identified with our point of view because that's part of the game, you know? You've got your point of view, i got my point of view. Let's see who wins. But we don't, we're not even that attached to our point of view. It's just like we can't play the game unless we're really attached. But if we, if, you know, if someone said, hey, let's switch. You be the Germans and I'll be the Americans, you know? And then we switch. And then you're identified with the other role. So it's, but the important, the important thing is the identity, you know, the identification, like the attachment, so that with that attachment, then you can kind of act it out in a big way. So sometimes we call these, you know, into drama. Like to, liking to hear ourselves talk about drama, the dramas, the difficulties, the obstacles. Like we need an ear so we can, you know, play out our drama. We need an audience. So this is another thing that <laughs> you can recognize. I remember back in the early '80s, I uh, did a couple, spent a couple summers up at uh, <coughs> Swami Vishnu Devananda had a yoga camp up in the Laurentian Mountains, north of Montreal. Beautiful place, and it's really kind of a hardcore, both meditation and breathing practices and studying and, and a lot of hatha yoga. And, and uh, 
absolutely. They're kind of warring God realm. You know, we'd be doing these really intense, uh, vigorous breathing exercises, you know, before meditation periods, where you're doing this kapalabhati, sort of forced exhalations, and you'd be doing bandhas, you know, holding the body in different ways. And then he'd have us in half lotus, or lotus pose, sort of, and you'd sort of be bouncing on your root (laughs) chakra, you know, at the base of your spine. It's like anything you could do to stimulate a spiritual experience. Well, I don't know about a spiritual experience, but some kind of experience. (laughs) I mean, in hindsight, even then, it seemed a little ridiculous, (laughs) I have to say. (laughs) But, you know, this is how some spiritual circles are. They're just like, you know, they're just into drama, into spiritual drama. And uh, they beat drums, and they we do all kinds of things to kind of make it seem serious or intense or big or important. I thought of another identity that's, I think, pretty common. Um, this wasn't in Christina's article, but like the, you could call it the dilettante. So they're on the tightrope, and the dilettante is like uh, flitting about interested, so interested in all the details and the different angles and trying things out and but not really wanting to settle down anywhere. And here the it's like feeding on exuberance, the exuberance of learning and seeing new things and it's like we're collecting insights. Um, got your butterflies and your spiritual insights, and your <laughs> coins, and your stamps, and uh, and just that identity, like, uh, you know, in the same way that some people, and I, I mean, I totally get this, I think a lot of Buddhist paraphernalia, you know, statues, artwork from the different Buddhist cultures are really beautiful, some of them, you know, and then, but I had a friend, when I lived in New York City, I had a friend, um, I'm not kidding. I think he had just in you know in New York. No one has a big apartment, in New York City, and uh, in his relatively small apartment. I mean, he must have had 200 statues, something like that. I mean, there were a lot of statues, not just Buddha statues, but also some uh, yoga, yoga Hindu statues too. So, but you know, and all kinds of other. Asian art, uh, religious art paraphernalia in his room, in his two little rooms, two little rooms in a bathroom. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this is that uh, dilettante, you know, where we're, we like everything about it except the practice, <laughs> <laughs> except sort of really getting interested in release. So then, you know, what are the actual attributes or qualities, you know, there on the tightrope? What are the actual useful qualities? Well, sincerity, you know, that's a nice word to reflect on. Like, what, what is sincerity or integrity? What does that lead to there in that exposed, vulnerable place we call this present moment the way it is. You know, one flavor of sincerity is like, uh, 
we're not willing to do something just because we've done it before or just because it's familiar. Like if we know that it doesn't go anywhere of value, then sincerity is sort of that, well, okay, I can, I'm not going to do that. I could do that, but I'm not going to do that. Because, because of sincerity, it's like, it's like I'm not interested in what's known because I know it and I know where it goes. And, or even more importantly, I know where it doesn't go what it doesn't lead to. So we're, like one definition maybe of sincerity is we're willing to tolerate ambiguity or tolerate vulnerability over uh, certainty or uh, an activity, an identity that is nothing more than a, a temporary distraction. I feel this way about, you know, a lot of uh, entertainments. I still get caught. I was telling people about that recently in one of my Dharma talks, how I've been caught recently. <laughs> I don't want to confess anymore. I realize when I confess, then it could easily prompt another person <laughs> to fall into the same hole. I'll get that book. <laughs> but, But I notice it's like, there are so many interesting things. And just, you know, be, by nature of my personality, I can be interested in a lot of different things. But I'm much less likely to go there because I know that I don't have to. It's, it's not like I think it's actually wrong to do this, to do that, to get into this, to get into that. But I realize that in the end, it's not going to be that relevant whether I do that or don't do that. So why bother? And you, you hear this and you might think, oh God, he sounds a little depressed. <laughs> you know, like, well... But there is very much, you know, part of sincerity is this stripping away. Even stripping away things that are relatively wholesome. Because it's like, uh, in the end, you know, the, what spiritual practice is asking us is to do the one thing that leads to release, which means letting go of everything else. Now, those other things may fall, come our way, but we're not, as a self, pursuing them. Wealth may come my way, entertainments may come my way, I might just walk into your house right when you're watching House of Cards, you know? And then I might just end up seeing an episode. <laughs> <laughs> so let me know. <laughs> no, I gave that one up already. <laughs> but... Uh, so we're not afraid of entertainments, but we're not intentionally pursuing them. It's like we're not biting, taking that bait, like, I'll be happy if, when I get that, when I, you know, am entertained in that way, because we know, we understand. And we're not afraid of non-entertainment. We're not afraid of that naked, vulnerable, tenuous, 
place on the tightrope. We actually cultivate a taste for that because it has the taste, well, if you don't like the word sincerity, it's sort of, unfortunately, we've overused this word, too many letters end sincere, sincerely. But that, that place that has so much integrity and simplicity and uh, non-distractedness maybe, and another quality that Christina brings up is this quality of confidence. So combination of sincerity, like a, a willingness to be patient, a willingness to let go of what we know doesn't lead anywhere of great significance, and this confidence in freedom or goodness or peace, even when it's not completely accessed. Maybe I'll read a little bit from her article at the end where she talks about confidence to end our evening together. She says, about confidence. This is the place where we can falter or be a little bit, a little more fragile. Nothing leaches out joy or freedom from our lives more than doubt and fear. Doubt and fear make us so hesitant in the face of so many things, makes us afraid of taking new steps, afraid of opening up. It makes us so afraid of disappointment. I wonder where we think the classroom is for gaining confidence. Right? So where, where do we get that confidence? It's really in that tenuous place. Right? Just the act of being willing to be there is the place that confidence grows. And a little later she says, when we find ourselves willing to come back and be with that which we were previously so resistant to or afraid of, we learn something about our confi- about confidence. When we find ourselves willing to be with something that seems so impossible, when we forsake the habitual places of hiding and sanctuary and come back and open up to the present, that's where we learn about confidence. Sitting here in this hall with other people is a gesture of confidence in ourselves and in our path. It's an expression of our willingness to open, forsaking the habit of abandonment. And this is important now to connect with the the rituals of retreat, like coming to the next set, doing the next walking practice, staying awake, you know, deciding not to take another nap, but just remaining conscious, even though it's unpleasant to be conscious. It's like that feeds confidence. Like I don't have to run. I can be in that on the tightrope without believing that great edifice that's telling me all these different ways to run. Greed, aversion, delusion. They're all like these ways of reacting to the present moment. She goes on at the end, it says... That's basically what we do here in mindfulness practice. We forsake the habit of abandoning the moment 
abandoning ourselves, and that is a very profound gesture of confidence. Let's just take a couple seconds, let go of the words. Sitting here together on our tightrope. Thanks for listening, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.